So upon a quick Google search, when defining movement literacy, some people say it's the ability to plan, execute basic motor skills such as run, jump, catch, kick, throw, with agility, balance, and coordination. Yeah, that's cool, but you know, we're going to go a little bit deeper than that, Dan. Let's do that. I, I, I think there's probably a little bit more to this definition than what this definition really says, so we're going to add to that definition with more definition. Yeah. Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back to Therapist in Motion. This is Dan hosting. I am on location today in Chandler, Arizona at an incredible facility with a gentleman that I have known for the last 11 years. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> crazy to time. think back that it's been 11 years. Uh, I'm on location here at Nike Performance, Performance, excuse me, with Javier Miller Estrada. Javier, welcome to the podcast. And why don't you take a little time to introduce yourself to our listeners? Dan, it's, it's all come full circle. 11 years later, man. <laughs> now we're on a podcast together. Um, thanks for the introduction, just to fill in a, any of those gaps for people. I'm one of the owners of Ignite Performance, along with my business partner, Rob Gambardella. We primarily work with athletes all the way, like in the summer, we have like the little, little nuggets. We have the eight-year-olds and 10-year-olds, but primarily high school and middle school athletes. That's our bread and butter, in addition to college athletes and some pro athletes. So we work with them Monday through Saturday, sessions pretty much from school ending all the way through the evening. And I've been doing that for five years been in this industry, I guess, around 10 or so. So uh, been up to that since, since we last uh, worked together back at Spooner North Scottsdale. But that's what we do day to day. And our goal is to help them become the best version of themselves. We try to take a holistic viewpoint through athleticism. So we try to address, obviously, the physical side is important. But obviously, there's a nutritional side, right, the mental side. We just basically try to provide them with opportunities that we didn't necessarily have when we were growing up. In addition to that, I have a podcast, so it's unique to be on the other side of the mic this time, called the Adaptable Athlete Podcast, and that is um, originally started as the Athlete Blueprint, and then now has merged with a company that I'm also part of called Emergence, uh, which is a company that uh, basically sells and promotes uh, a modern approach to skill acquisition, so educational content for coaches. So anybody who's interested in learning maybe a little bit more about some of the stuff we talk about today that is uh, an option for you. So Ignite and Emergence and the podcast are kind of my three, three things that I do. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, as we were kind of doing some so show prep and, and speaking, it's really cool to kind of reflect back to where you were 11 years ago and, and the growth that we've seen. And, you know, we're just super proud of you. So it's, it's an honor to call you a colleague. We always knew you were going to do great things and we're happy that you kind of found your 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 spot, you know, yeah. as, as you kind of went through that journey, like so many people do of, well, you know, do I want to be a physical therapist? Do I want to be a PA? Do I want to be a doc? Do I want to leave medicine altogether? Because it's sometimes a cluster and feel like you found an, an awesome spot in your sports performance. Yeah, thanks, man. I, I think it's, it's been a winding journey and you kind of like laid it out, you know, not knowing what to do and then trying to have this plan going forward. But then you realize like the plan is more about like connecting the dots, right? Going back, you know what I mean? And and, and that's, that's how, how it worked out for me. But through experiences with Spooner and, and other uh, environments, I think it really helped me be, be able to relate to people of uh, various backgrounds. And, uh, and uh, I still know how to make a hot pack. I still know how to, <laughs> how to clean the table. I still have that. I still know how to be a tech yeah. in addition to, to, to you, coaching. You still know how to prescribe that 
exercise that'll take five minutes when you need time to go to the bathroom yeah. or catch up with another client. You know, I mean, that famous That's, individual that would take five minutes yeah. to do a lateral walk in the clinic. Yeah, honestly, that though, having to work with like uh, <laughs> someone who's 75 years old, having to work with a kid who's 20 and having to do that made me really good. Like my first uh, experience in, in training was at a spot that was pretty very disorganized. And so I was used to being able to run back and forth, couple that with working in a restaurant, man, I'm, I'm pretty good at multi, multitasking. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. If Paul was telling, sitting here, he would say, Javi, there's no such thing as multitasking. Yeah, and that's, that's why I used air quotes. That's why they didn't see me, air quotes. Not really multitasking, but task switching, we'll say. Yeah. Um, or being able to have eyes in the back of your head, you know, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so today's kind of topic of conversation is really developing movement literacy and you know, you mentioned connecting the dots and, and how you, your business will train individuals as, as young as eight. And so kind of my first question to you is, how do you define movement, movement literacy and what does that look like in your initial programming when you get athletes in for the first time? Uh, so that's a great question and it's going to look different for each athlete. And I think that's important for everybody to know, someone who's eight, is going to look different and present themselves and display movement quality different than someone who's 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way up to the professional level. Like even using that at, at that level, you'll be surprised by some of the quote unquote inefficiencies that we see in high level athletes. Some of the asymmetries, some of the things that you actually see when you work with those guys. But starting with the lower athletes, I think we have to understand that a lot of the times this is their first exposure to movement. A lot of the things that you and I grew up with, like we talked off air about COVID stripping away two years of practical movement development that these kids did, right? If you think about the stuff you did growing up, landing off of a, of a swing, where we all used to swing and jump in the air and landing, well, that was like a plyometric, that's a depth drop. That is kind of being shipped away. So part of our job is to kind of reverse engineer some of that activity back into the program for those eight-year-olds, for those younger kids that don't normally get that. So when I think of movement literacy, it isn't just about perfecting one movement solution. Obviously, we need to know how to squat and, and pull and, and these, these you know, hinge and these basic human, human movements that, that we, we teach in, in a gym setting with weight or without weight, but it's also about being able to display it in varying degrees of complexity under different constraints, um, not just being able to do a lunge that's picture perfect, but can you do a lunge that maybe, let's say, the game of football like we were talking about, a lunge is just kind of like a cut, right? Getting in and out of a break. Can you do that when it's not perfectly in the sagittal plane? Is, can it be multi-planar? So, so for me, it, it's about, you know, not just movement quality, but movement abundance, having an athlete that can display a robust set of movement skills. So that's what I think about. And as far as how we go about starting it, I mean, it starts with our assessment. It, it's going to look different than, say, uh, an athlete who is coming off of an injury or an athlete who's a younger athlete, but we'll, we'll do an assessment and we'll see how that athlete moves. If we can, we'll try to look at how they move in their environment because that's going to truly display, like show us what they can actually do in context and then go from there and try to build a program that's going to help them fill those gaps. That's awesome. I, I really like the, you know, abundance and being able to have a variety of inputs into the system to assist with developing resiliency. Yep. You know, that speaks to, you know, Wolf's Law and Davis's Law, you know, all those things that we learned back in school that sometimes we, we, we only think about during recovery from an injury, not also related to 
the performance side of 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 our of the individuals that we're working with, regardless if it's regardless of age. To mm -hmm. be completely honest, yeah, absolutely. With you. Um, so my next question is: Once you've kind of built this as a foundation, and you see how you know the individuals move. When you're thinking about programming a session, are there certain things that you utilize on a consistent basis to assist with developing that, that movement, you know, resiliency and variability that, that will be part of their kind of movement prep before you go into a skill activity or a loaded activity or a plyometric activity? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And one of the things that we try to promote in, within our walls is this idea of ownership and having that athlete have some autonomy and ownership over their warm-up. It's still structured, but for example, one of the things that we do, we do some, you know, some mobility prep, like some cars, things like that, just to make sure we take their joints through full ranges of motion. But then we might do what we call like an ownership squat. And so they can go ahead and squat and lunge and move in different ways that is going to allow them to experience varying joint angles. It's going to allow them to own those positions. Our athletes will sometimes come in and they'll feel like, you know, hey, I'm a little tight in my hips. And so they maybe do more lateral kind of wide base things because they need to kind of feel what they are like today. And I think that's important for coaches, PTs, anybody listening to this to know is that your athletes are going to walk into the door a different person every time you know no man steps in the same river twice so that's some of the ways we do it prior to getting into that activity whatever it's more of a speed-based task or agility-based task we might do a small-sided game like a smaller scaled version of what they're going to be doing right if it involves something where they're passing to a teammate or something like that or where they are taking a specific angle when they're running we might do that in a smaller scale as part of our movement so it's preparing them their human movement system which i love that you um, you used that, that phrase earlier because that's how we think about it. It's preparing them for what they're going to see just on a smaller scale and then taking them to the, the bigger task. And I think for, you know, the majority of our audience, obviously being physical therapists, is, is thinking about that in our planning with a patient is they're still going to have to have movement resiliency when they leave the clinic, when they leave your facility mm -hmm. How do we help our movement planning and our exercise progressions to utilize foundational tasks, help bring more body awareness to the patients so that when they come in, they have a little bit more to, to, to give us, hey, yeah, I feel a little bit more here. Okay, great. We've taught you, you know, 27 different ways you could squat mm -hmm. and six different ways you could lunge. That doesn't mean you're going to do those every single time you come in because this position or this movement is going to stress this area more than another. And based on the response from the previous session, you know, how, how fatigued or recovered mm -hmm. do they feel when they, when they come in, allowing some of that personal ownership, I think is, is something that us as physical therapists need to learn from performance coaches and speed and agility coaches on on that level of autonomy and helping empower our patients or clients to participate in that and like you said take active ownership yeah no i i love that and i think this like this concept of ownership is not just in my setting right as a physical therapist i think a lot of it is going to be and and you know like 
I spent a lot of time with Ben over at, yep. in Chandler. He's really good at this. He's really good at asking, you know, and so is Sam and Carly and all the therapists over there. That's just the ones that I've worked with. Like, what do you, what do you want to get back to? What, what are the tasks that you're going to be doing in your day to day? And then really understanding that that person now has some input, some ownership in the process. And you can ask them like, does this represent what you're going to be doing? Like Sam climbs, I climb from time to time. So he's trying to design, like when I went there for my elbow, trying to design tasks for me to do that are going to be representative and specific to what I do in my sport of climbing, right? And so I think as a therapist, as any sort of practitioner, just understanding what the day-to-day tasks of your client, your athlete is, I think is really important. And it creates a bond and a connection where they start to trust you more. And you can maybe start to push their boundaries because the reality is I've been there. I've torn my ACL. I've had four knee surgeries. When you come back, man, you're scared, right? You're a little bit fixed and frozen. Your degrees of freedom are not expanded to once they once were. And having that trusted relationship with somebody to help expand your, your toolbox, if you will, is really, really critical. Yeah, I mean, I think when we when I traditionally think of developing movement literacy, I really think about it in youth. But based on what you were just talking about, movement literacy really needs to develop developed in all of our patients, all of our athletes, regardless of age, because it goes back to that movement resiliency and movement abundance. You never know when you're going to take an outside force or you know, I was watching a golf tournament this weekend and, and the guy that was leading, he was wearing real metal spikes, which you don't see very often anymore on, in golf, one, because it really destroys the grass, but his foot slipped to the, in the middle of his downswing. His back foot was almost off the ground, but yet he was still able to make incredible contact with the ball and hit it right down the middle of the fairway and not get hurt. Yeah. And so, like, I even think about that. That, to me, was a perfect recent example on national television where whatever this guy was doing on his training, whether it was with his physio, whether it was with his personal trainer, whether it was his swing coach, he had done something to develop movement abundance so that when that foot slipped, he didn't get hurt. Because how many people could really withstand that? Exactly. And I think... There's this idea that, you know, everything has to be technically perfect, right? And, and I, I, not saying that we should throw caution to the wind and just do everything and it looks like hell, right? But, but at the same time, we have to, exp- you know, expect the reality that our athletes are going to go with what we call, um, with someone I know named Marianne Davies, who's a researcher in England, I believe she calls it the ugly zone, right? Can you train a little bit in the ugly zone? And that includes in a physical therapy setting, right? Even if someone is coming back, and every, if it's always three sets of 10 on step-ups, like, are they really going to be ready for carrying groceries out to the curb or picking up their grandson and does, he does something squirmy or something and then they hurt their back. And so I think varying the loads, adding in perturbations, we do, like, as, as, a, as a practical example, we'll do some stuff where an athlete will jump and then another athlete will push them, create some contact. So you're perturbing them midair and then they have to land, right? They have to land effectively as opposed to always training in a in this perfect like 50-50 weight distribution, like this is not gonna happen, go watch a volleyball game. It doesn't happen. And that's why, it's one of the reasons so many athletes like under the net, that's how they sprain their ankle, that's how we had a girl who, who did that, she's in college now, she I was on warm ups. she landed on someone's foot and she had a, a, a patellar dislocation, Pete over at um, East Chandler, worked with her, she's good now. But yeah, adding some of that variability, adding some of that in a safe, controlled way, I think you can do across most time scales. I don't, I don't see as being something that is just reserved for elite athletes or youth athletes. 
Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting concept for that I really want our, our listeners to go back and listen to those last few minutes Javier was speaking and how can we extrapolate that to anybody that's on your caseload? Because like you said, it, everybody wants to get back to something. Some of them are at extremely high level, you know, across the spectrum and others may not be considered extremely high level, but it's extremely important to them. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I kind of want to come back a little bit to, to your expertise and managing your athletes through a program. How often in your program do you kind of go back and reset foundational movement skills and almost go back to kind of quote-unquote the basics of let's make sure that they their feet are underneath them, that they understand where their feet are in space. Maybe they've gone mm-hmm. through a growth spurt. Like, what does that look like in your programming? And how often do you guys do you guys work that into a program? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, we have a lot of the similar movements done just in different ways. So they're constantly getting input. We'll rotate our workouts every. Uh, every four weeks, you know, and we'll basically, we'll have different exercise blocks, changing up the reps, changing up the position. For an example, the squat pattern might be one athlete. We might have a session with a 12, 13 year old, right? And then there might be a 16 year old. Let's say this 12 year old is a baseball player. 16 year old is a football player. Should they be doing the same squat? Probably not. A squat is still a pattern and we just load it differently. So that football player might be doing, if he's close to season, he might be doing more velocity-based training. He might be doing like an overspeed uh, isometric or a banded squat. That baseball player, he doesn't need to do that. He's 12, 13 years old. He needs to develop general strength. And I think that's one area that we kind of get lost in a little bit, at least in my industry, you know, thanks to Twitter and, and, and TikTok and everything, is everything is like it, GPP gets lost, right? Just getting strong in a variety of ways, but not necessarily – having it be so specialized that it takes away from having those inputs, like you said. One thing that I think you touched on that is important to understand is, and I get this all the time, where a kid will come in and they'll look good running and yada, yada, and then they'll come back from a summer and then the parent will say, I don't know what happened to my kid. And I'll say, well, he grew three inches or she grew three inches. And so as an athlete, you have to recalibrate and become attuned to a different set of constraints. You're taller than you were. You're bigger than you were. Your feet are bigger. And so we see it all the time. So it's a constant recalibration period. And unless you expose your athletes to a variety of problems, then they're never going to – it's the same thing with me. Like, like we're not the same people we were, right? <laughs> right? Safe to say. Uh, you golf a lot. Are you the same golfer you were when you were 25? No. No, so things have changed. But because you've stayed active, you've adapted to who you are now. Same thing with me. Certain things I don't necessarily do with my left knee. You know, I, I, I know that, but I've adapted to, to get by in the world because I've continued to move. So I think that's critical. So let's talk a little bit about your philosophy and approach when that athlete comes back and they've gone through that rapid growth spurt over a relatively short period of time. Because I think that the physical therapists see that too. Because oftentimes that person will come into the clinic with, a complaint of, of pain, mm-hmm. whether it's through their Achilles, whether it's through their, you know, their tibial, tibial tuberosity or their patella, or, you know, sometimes their hip complexes. Like, how do you, like, what are some of your strategies that really therapists could learn from on, is this a time to, to hammer strength? Is this a time to work on 
footwork and and, and that proprioceptive input? Like from your point of view and your perspective, what are some of the trip tricks that and and lessons that you've figured out over the last ten years in this industry? Yeah. I think a, a, bl- a blended approach, I think, is probably the way to go. Um, I do think, and I'm thinking of a kid, as soon as you said that, this kid is um, 12 going on 13, and he's like 6'1", right? And he's, and he's 165. He's, he's a string bean, right? He's a little bit like Bambi on ice, right? His legs are really tall. His dad's about 6'5". He's going to be tall. And when we work with him, right, we understand that when he's working with, with the group and other kids that his squat form, his technique may not look like somebody else's. So we modify his exercises and understand that like, I'm not going to load him up so much and expect him to get to a parallel deep, you know, butt all the way down to the ground type of squat. So there's different ways that we can do a squat pattern for him. A better movement might be a trap bar deadlift. It's a similar pattern, but it's going to be easier for him to do and safer. And then the other thing that we address is, is going to be mobility because I just, I've noticed a lot of kids like the one I just said that grow really fast, tight hamstrings, internal rotate, hip internal rotation is usually lacking. So we make sure that we give them things that they can do on their own. Um, and I think it's from a, from a movement standpoint is bringing awareness to what they're doing, right? We think of a tall athlete. Well, their base of support is probably not going to be very great, right? You have shorter athletes like me, we can get low to the ground and we can understand how to change direction efficiently, but bringing awareness to, Hey, and not necessarily telling them how to move, but guiding them say, how did that feel? Do you think it would be better if your base was a little bit different, right? And so having them become aware and attuned to that, I think is really important as opposed to just saying you have to do it 100% this way because I think that's going to be more sticky. And when it comes to like transfer, right, I, I think this, can I go on a little side tangent here? Absolutely. Okay, perfect. I think PTs need to think of themselves too as, you know, I, I consider myself someone who works in skill acquisition. I think PTs are right there as well. They're helping people become skillful again, right? Adapt again to become skillful. And so I think when we think about in, in those terms, we have to think about ultimately about transfer. And there's a decent amount of literature that talks about transfer of training and how blocked versus random practice. And if everything is perfect all the time, it might look good in clinic, but it's going to look good ultimately in their everyday life. And that's something to think about with how we're guiding our athletes and how we're working with our patients. Like how can we allow that to hopefully transfer outside of your setting? I think that that's a huge thing for therapists to really think about because you mentioned it earlier. They're, they may have perfect squat form, great lunge form in a controlled setting with nobody around them. But then they get back onto the field, the ice, the court, and there's people, there's bodies. Yeah. There's uncontrolled outside forces, and then you get lost in the aspect of the, of, of the competition, mm-hmm. the practice. So you're not really thinking about, well, where is my knee going when I make this lunge or this cut? And, and, and so I think that's something I really want to empower our listeners to take time and give, them, give themselves the flexibility to be okay going into kind of like what you said earlier, the ugly zone. Yep. You still got to go safely mm-hmm. and smartly with how you're programming a session, regardless of where they are. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I are talking pre-show prep. We've, I've programmed people wrong and fried them 
at the end yeah. of the session when that wasn't what my intention was, whether it was a, a youth athlete or it was an older individual and they come back and, you know, they're still miserable days later. Mm-hmm. But how we go about and give ourselves the ability to push our own selves yes, to challenge our, our patients, our athletes into zones I mean, if Tim Spooner were sitting here, he would say, how close to the edge of the cliff are you? Yeah. Obviously, you don't want to fall off that mm-hmm. cliff, but how close to that region are you? Do you have one, you know, one foot on one side and the other foot's hanging over the edge and you're developing this new sense of, of control and a new environment? But I think also for the therapists, you have to arm yourself with people who will be able to facilitate more and develop an additional level of skill like you were mm-hmm. talking about, Javi, from, from, from your network of providers and people that you trust. Yeah. And, and you, can't, you can't do it alone. Um, you can't realize that it's a turf war. No, really the athlete or the patient is at the center. And if there's people who are going to see it as a turf war, is that really somebody that maybe you really want to partner with or don't want to partner with. So I think you bring up some really good yeah. things there. Yeah. Just to comment on what you said, cause I think that's huge is that it, it really is a collaborative effort. You know, we believe in something called an athlete centered approach. It was athlete centered and a coach centered approach. And if we truly believe in an athlete centered approach, we're going to highlight their needs and we're going to do what's best for them. Like just around the corner in our, in our parent lounge, it says we put the athlete first, right? That's what our goal and our mission is, is to provide an opportunity for those athletes to be their best and I have worked many times and collaborated with PTs. We don't necessarily have to have the same language, but we have to understand each other. And I give deference when needed, and a good PT should give deference on my end when needed. And it's 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 collaborative effort. And the athletes get hurt when, and maybe not physically hurt, but they get hurt in the long run about when that transition is not done smoothly. And I get it from a physical therapy standpoint. You know, I've been in that world for, for a long time. You want to have people you can trust. Because you've done all this, all this work, you've, 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 you've done everything, you've, the, the surgeon said, you've done everything in your power, and then now you're going to hand them off to someone who doesn't know what they're doing. And, and I get it, but that's why that network and having people that you trust, my, some of my best outcomes, like I'm working with Adam from, from um, East Chandler right now, it's, I talked to him once or twice a week, like, hey, this is what I saw. I mean, it's, it's awesome. And that athlete gets the benefit of having a therapist to do things that I can't do you know, or that if I could do it, it would take me a lot longer to find the root issue than, than Adam could. And now Adam gets to rely on me on what do you see when this athlete is working with you in a game-like context because you're the closest one to that situation because the reality is, is that gap is going to be filled by something. It's going to be filled by someone who doesn't know what they're talking about or someone who does. They're going to go to that coach, that sport coach, and it's not the sport coach's fault. They're not, they're not trained on that. So if that athlete just jumps across the bridge, across that gap, are they, how are they going to do it? You know, how are they going to do it? Are they going to do it safely, successfully? So I think that's really important. So I'm really glad you brought up the communication piece because that's really big with me. All right. I, I think we've talked about some cool things, you know, the, the definition of movement literacy and, and kind of establishing that across a spectrum. Obviously, in, in your specialty, it's, it's focused on athletes, and I think that it's a challenge for us in the, in the physical therapy side to think about that across the spectru- spectrum. And I do want to give you the freedom as our listeners to take time to devote that 
ask questions, you know, find people around you who are within your network or create a network to better yourself, you know, kind of like what you were just saying, Javi, with you and Adam, to trust each other's eyes and opinions and realize that, again, you have the athlete in the center, the patient in the center to, to facilitate that care. You, you know, I do want to give the opportunity, is there anything that we didn't really, I didn't ask about that that's kind of still, you know, you were like, you asked permission to go on a tangent, absolutely. <laughs> is there anything that's kind of weighing on your head or on your mind that, that we didn't really talk about that you really want to talk about before we kind of wrap this up? I guess I would just say to issue a challenge to both, um, to both people, uh, to both sides, because there's the strength and conditioning side, you know, and then the rehab side. And I don't know that it's always seen eye to eye. And I just would issue a challenge to whoever's listening to this to try to cross that bridge in respect and in the effort to create a better experience for our patients and our athletes. I think PTs, the knowledge, like I have so much respect for the profession. PTs have an incredible knowledge base, but sometimes, and this is not, this is just how I feel. It's not a shot at anybody in particular. I think can get very much inside their own box and are afraid to step outside the box. It's very easy to continue to do the same reps and sets, the same exercise with everybody. And I get it. It's not easy if you're an outpatient orthopedic. It's, it's not easy. So I would challenge PTs to maybe connect with someone uh, as a strength coach. Maybe they can learn something from them and then they can apply it in their setting. And then for strength coaches, I think stop thinking that you can't work with somebody else because there's even I felt this when I was younger, when I was working with people that I was like, well, if, if I go recommend them to somebody else, then maybe they won't work with me or they're going to find it. Let go of that because at the end of the day, if you make a good recommendation to work with a physical therapist, because I'm quick, quicker to do that now than ever, even though my knowledge has expanded, quicker to do that now than ever because I know it's probably going to be the best outcome for the patient. So as a strength coach, drop the ego, allow someone in, right? Recommend someone that, that, that you trust, create, create an opportunity to learn for yourself as well. And at the end of the day, our patients, our clients will benefit. So that, that's my challenge to both sides of the fence who are listening to this conversation. I think that's an awesome challenge. There were multiple times we mentioned this is an important nugget to go back and listen to. And I, I, again, that's, I, would, I would add to Javi's. Th this, is, this is one, it's going to take time, especially on the, on the physical therapist side, because it's not something historically that a lot of us are very good at. Uh, you know, variability programming and, and changing load and volume and programming in general. And so if that's not something you're good at, you got to find somebody to help you. You got to find additional resources. And it's not a knock on you. Honestly, like what Javier just said, that's probably going to be better for the patient and both parties, the strength coach, the therapist. And if there's anybody else involved, a position specific coach, you know, the coach of the mm -hmm. overarching organization, it's just going to help so much more. And like you said, removing those egos to say, it doesn't matter who, who, who helps this athlete more. It matters that the athlete or the patient gets back to what they want to get back to. Absolutely. So Javi, I thank you for joining us. Hopefully this is the first of many appearances with us on our podcast uh, do check him out on Instagram. His Ignite Performance page has some awesome stuff. Follow his podcast as well. Again, he brings in speakers from all over the world, so I encourage you to, 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 to check that out. 
And if you have any additional questions, comments, or feedback for us on Therapist in Motion, please do not hesitate to reach out at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 